This is Anchored in Christ, the sermon podcast that gives you hope in the gospel as an anchor for your soul. Brought to you from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. It's good to be with everyone in worship, joining together me in my home, you in our homes, uh, our worship leaders at the sanctuary in Old South. It's good to be together to hear from God's word. Um, I'm going to read the second reading, our passage for today, a few selected readings from Revelation between 12 and 14. Um, Before chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, we're introduced to this interesting nativity scene of a pregnant woman being pursued by a dragon, and then the dragon uh, is defeated. Uh, by the offspring of this woman, which is Jesus, the Messiah. And the dragon is defeated and cast down upon the earth. And then we pick it up here in chapter 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they did not cling to life, even in the face of death. Rejoice then you heavens and those who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea for the devil has come down to you with great wrath. Because he knows that his time is short. And then this dragon sends these two beasts to the earth, picking up in chapter 13 after he's cast down. Um, And I see a beast rising out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave it his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, but its mortal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast. They worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And then picking up in chapter 14, after the second beast comes, then John says, John says, then I looked in his vision and there was the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from humankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their blame and in their mouth, no lie was found. They are blameless. Let's pray together. Gracious God, We ask that you would send your spirit to wherever we are at right now. Lord, soften our hearts. 
soften our hearts, open our hearts up so that we can hear your life-giving, challenging, transformative word this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a number of months ago, Sarah was talking about the preaching plan for the coming for the coming year. Um, and she said, you're preaching on November 8th and you get to preach the sermon on politics. And then she just smiled at me. So here we are. It's November 8th. And what a week it's been. With so many of us glued to our TVs and our smartphones, refreshing vote totals minute by minute day throughout the day and night. I read in the Globe, in the Boston Globe this week, that liquor, that sales at liquor stores this week were double what they normally are. A testament to just the obsession and the exhaustion that we all feel. And whatever your political persuasion, we're, we're all left wondering, where is our nation and our society headed? Where are we headed? And as a church, as God's people, we have to ask, in the midst of all these unknowns, what's the future role for us as God's people in, the, the political, in our political life, in our public life, in our shared life with our neighbors? What is that future that we're called to? Do we try to reassert our control and to dominate public life? Do we retreat uh, out of public life and keep our faith out of uh, our shared life with our neighbors, sort of trying to float above the fray of all the chaos? The message of Revelation doesn't suggest either domination or retreat. The message of Revelation is that we, in hope, follow Jesus into the fray of the future laid out before us. We follow Jesus into the fray. We walk with Jesus together into the brokenness of this world. As we embody and proclaim the new way of life that we have been shown in Jesus. In chapter 14, verse 6, they follow, or sorry, verse, verse 4, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. We follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And as we're going to look at what it looks like to follow Jesus into the fray of our unknown future, We're going to look at two things. First, Jesus made the way, and then Jesus models the way. Jesus made the way, and Jesus models the way into this unknown future that we face as a church. So first, Jesus makes the way. Jesus is the one who blazes the trail of the kingdom of God into the wilderness of our future. He's the one who makes the way. When I, was, when I was in college, my stepdad and two of my closest friends and I, we climbed uh, Mount Whitney, which is the, in California, which is the highest peak in the continental United States at around 14,500 feet. 
And the second day, we started out from camp at 10,000 feet, headed up into kind of the highest elevation of the journey. And my stepdad, who was leading us, he said, I remember him saying, now, boys, we're going to start out slow. But once we get, and it's going to feel really slow at the beginning, but once we get up to 12, 13,000, 14,000 feet, if we keep this pace, we're going to make it all the way to the top. So sure enough, we set out at 10,000 feet. We started off slow, a slow pace, and people were just passing us left and right. But we were following, plodding along. But little by little, as we got up to 12,000 feet, 13,000 feet, 14,000 feet, as the air got thinner and thinner, we still were able to keep that pace. And little by little, we started passing almost every single person that passed us along that final leg of the journey. I trusted my stepdad as he guided us up that mountain because I'd been on lots of hikes with him and we had always made it to the top, but I'd never been above 10,000 feet. I didn't know what it was like, but slowly we made it as he set the pace and guided us along that unknown path. And he was there at the top to welcome us with, with a smile and with praise. In our journey as Christians, as God's people, Jesus leads the way for us. He makes the way before us. This section of Revelation chapters 12 through 14, it gives us this visionary count of this heavenly battle between the lamb and his followers and the dragon and the beasts. And at the beginning, we're given this very unconventional nativity scene of this woman fleeing from this dragon, this pregnant woman. And this woman represents, in, in many ways, it encapsulates stories of Eve and Mary and even embodies God's people who give birth to the Messiah. And the dragon symbolizing Satan who's trying to pursue and devour this child. But the end is, in, in many ways, is very anticlimactic. The devil is, this, this dragon is cast down. This child is swept away to the throne of God. So Satan is just decisively defeated in an instant. And then a voice declares in uh, chapter 12, verse 10, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. So at the beginning of this story, we are told that the ultimate victory over evil, over all the brokenness in our world, the ultimate victory has already been won in Jesus. God's kingdom, his new creation work in this world has already been permanently established in Jesus. And we get to join in that new creation work by faith. As we respond to Jesus' gracious call to come, follow me on the journey that I've already started and that I've already won. So Jesus paved the way and we just follow in his wake. As the gospel tells us, as the gospels tell us, Jesus lived out in his life the fullness of God's kingdom. It was a kingdom of justice and holiness of care for the vulnerable and the broken, of this other-centered enemy love that was so radical 
And Jesus living out these kingdom values in the midst of the world, it exposed and it provoked the evil around him. It exposed all those religious and political leaders who were using their religion and using their politics uh, to keep the status quo, to keep themselves in power. Jesus' beautiful work of establishing his kingdom was a threat to their own self-absorbed power. Radical love, other-centered love, it exposes self-centered, others abusing evil. Love exposes evil. Good exposes evil. And then the resurrection is sort of God's eternal stamp that as at at the cross, we have this culmination of uh, the ultimate love exposed in Jesus going all the way to the cross and his sacrifice. And then we have evil culminating at the same time. And so the cross is where ultimate evil and ultimate good are revealed all at once. And then the resurrection is God's permanent stamp of approval on the way of Jesus. It's this permanent stamp of approval that the way of Jesus wins in this world. It is that that stamp has already been made. The victory has already been won. So Jesus made the way. Jesus made the ultimate victory over evil in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. So first Jesus made the way, and then he models the way. He he made the way for us, but his way shows us the way that we're called to live on this side of the resurrection. One of the things that New Testament writers uh, affirm throughout is that not only did Jesus's life, death, and resurrection achieve salvation for us, but that same pattern of life, death, and resurrection, of dying and rising, of suffering and glory, that marks our life and our witness as the church. Jesus's story becomes our story. His way becomes our way. Now, when we talk about the church following the suffering way of Jesus, it's important to say that the Bible is not talking about doormat theology. The call to follow Jesus, the call to follow Jesus doesn't endorse a quiet toleration of evil. It doesn't endorse the silent suffering caused by the evils of abuse, an abusive spouse an abusive boss, an abusive parent. We're not called to endorse that, that silent suffering caused by the evils of abuse and bullying and intimidation. In fact, the suffering that's talked about here in Revelation, it actually exposes evil. It, it brings evil into the light. It shows evil for what it is. And so suffering is not the goal of the Christian life. It comes when the kingdom of God butts heads with the evil systems and people of this world. The evil systems, they're threatened and they fight back against the good that God has brought in his kingdom and through Jesus. It's like the 
the classic uh, teen movie plot where the new nice kid comes to campus and breaks into the popular crowd and upsets the whole social hierarchy. And the person that it upsets the most, of course, is the one who was at the top, the popular kid who was at the top. And it provokes his wrath and anger because he's lost all control. He, it, it, the, these instances show that they reveal that that popular kid didn't love the little minions underneath him. He just kept them around to fuel his own ego. Our exclusive devotion to Jesus, it exposes the evils of anyone or any system trying to play God in our lives. Anyone trying to use us or control us for their own gain. We see this exposing and, and provoking of evil with the two beasts in chapter 13. Obviously, there's lots that could be said about these beasts. We mixed in this passage here that I didn't read are the number 666 and the mark of the beast. But I think how understanding some basics about the beast will help us grasp some of these things. Um, so the dragon is defeated in chapter 12 and cast down to the earth. And in this vision that John ha has, he sees these two, the dragon sends these two beasts to the world to wage this final yet futile battle ultimately for Satan to bring down as many to his fate as he can. So the message is that evil's end is sure, but evil will take down as much human of humanity as it can with it. And so the dragon is cast down. He sends these two beasts. And for John, in his immediate context, his historical moment, when he's thinking of the beasts, he's thinking of the Roman Empire. He's thinking of the Roman Empire and, and its desire to control and manipulate its citizens through this mutually reinforcing mix of political, economic, and religious domination. But this vision, it's, it's not just about Rome because John is already drawing from Daniel where, these, where there's other images of beasts. And in Daniel, uh, Daniel's vision is talking about the evils and the corruptions of the Babylonian and Persian empires. So the principle that we have here is that as John is looking at Rome and as he's pointing back to Babylon and other empires, what we, what we have when we look at Revelation and we see these visions, we don't just think of the immediate context that John's writing about, but John is, is in many ways giving us permission to connect the evils of Babylon and Rome uh, together into our own context. These visions, they speak to the past but they also illuminate the world that we're living in now and how we're called to live into the future and understand both the good and the brokenness that surrounds us. These visions, they expose any systems and any people who try to play God in our lives. As one of my New Testament professors at, at seminary said, pick your evil dictator when thinking about who these beasts represent. And the 20th century was full of them, from Stalin to Hitler to Pol Pot in Cambodia to Idi Amin in Uganda. And the list just keeps going into our present day. 
And it's not just government systems and their leaders, uh, but our, in our own age, especially economic systems, corporations and systems of consumption that, that demand our ultimate loyalty, that demand brand loyalty, and that we don't upset the status quo that they've established for us to keep us uh, kind of mildly satiated with the temporary pleasures of buying one thing after the other after the other and ignoring the plight of the world around us. There's this allure to the beast in chapter 13. In chapter 13, verse 4, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? The beast brings even brings worship to itself. The beast is calling for worship and devotion. It's calling the church to, to give up its worship and devotion to Jesus and to give it to another system that is ultimately bent to, um, to, to destroy and to coerce all those around it. The, the New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham, he writes that the witness, the witness of God's people in our faithful, exclusive devotion to Jesus and his kingdom and his kingdom values and the way of life in the kingdom, our devotion, it exposes Rome's idolatrous self-deification for what it is. Our living out the way of Jesus exposes Rome's idolatrous self-deification for what it is. So like Jesus exposed the evils of the leaders bent on power and control in his own time, our witness to Jesus and our witness to his kingdom exposes the evil of all the systems and all the people that are opposed to Jesus and his ways. So Jesus made the way for us. His victory is sure. He established his new creation in his resurrection. But his way is the model for us as we live into the fray of our unknown future in our society, in our world. And so what does this mean for our public life, our, our, our political life, our shared common life as God's people? Um, first, our devotional center is Jesus Christ, and our communal center is the body of Christ. We're we're Christians first and Americans second. And America is better for it. This, this doesn't mean we're, we're giving up on America. Um, no, because we're not giving up on America. We're not giving up on our culture. No, we're, we're putting our center in Jesus Christ and the kingdom. And those that kingdom way of life can permeate, change, and even transform aspects of our society. But the body of Christ, the church, it outlasted Rome. It outlasted the Spanish Empire, the British Empire. And the church is going to outlast the American century. And we were part of a local and then a global people that span time and span space. We're, we're, we're part of this local people at Old South who are gathering in our homes and and, and worshiping in, in, in the sanctuary, we're gathered together sharing that ultimate devotion to Jesus with one another. And we're gathering with, right now, with believers around the world in house churches in China and chapels in France and mega churches in Africa, 
all following the Lamb wherever he goes, sharing our devotion and our ultimate allegiance to Jesus together. So we go forward with our with our political imagination as we read Revelation, where our political imagination is, is it's recalibrated to put our Christian belonging and our devotion to Jesus Christ at the center of how we see how we're moving into the future and what is happening into our world. And we put America into that context, not the other way around. We put our belonging to Jesus and his people as our ultimate allegiance in this world. Second, when we follow Jesus into this world, we're not called toward public domination nor retreat. We're not called to wield the manipulative, coercive, oppressive power of Caesar, forcing society to be made into our image in some way. But nor are we called to what I think is an even more tempting direction in our age, which is to reduce our faith more and more and more into a personal sphere. And that is not what Revelation is giving us a vision for in terms of our, 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 our lives following Jesus into the fray of our world. No, the gospel is this outward facing. Um, we're, we're called, it's this outward facing, it's living out our faith in this self-giving, long-suffering, other-centered love that Jesus leads us into. It's not an inward-facing love, it's an outward-facing love. And this embracing this other-centered, outward-facing love, it, it takes us into places where suffering is at its strongest, at its most acute. Places of suffering often show cracks in the system. And the church is called into these places, uh, not just to be there, but to, through our way of life, to expose the evil that is causing that suffering. We expose the evils lurking in those places as we live out this grace-saturated reign of Jesus. In closing, one of the beauties of following Jesus and not Caesar is that you don't have to be powerful in the eyes of the world to be in the kingdom of God. You don't need to be an influencer. You don't need to have thousands of subscribe subscribers on YouTube. You don't need to be powerful in the eyes of the world to be at the very center of the kingdom of God. In fact, as the New Testament tells us, it's often the opposite. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5? The meek shall inherit the earth. Part of the point of Revelation is not just to pull back the curtain on evil, but it's also to pull back the curtain on the faithful devotion of saints who feel that so much of what they do is unseen. It's God saying, I see you. I see those, those small acts of devotion that some of us, as we feel trapped in our homes or trapped in certain spaces right now with COVID, we're called to live out the kingdom faithfully in those places where we are. And then follow Jesus 
into the fray of those places that he lays before us. Part of the politics of the lamb of Jesus leading us into the fray of this world is that he is creating a new people, a new body politic, a new community of those of us who know our vulnerabilities, who know our sin, who know our need for one another, who know our need for the otherworldly love of God in our lives. It's this otherworldly love that makes us faithful, that makes us strong. That makes us bold to unmask the evil that's around us. That makes us bold and willing to suffer its threats. Suffering even, as the Bible calls, to the point of death. Because we follow the Lamb wherever he goes. We follow Jesus into the fray. We follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And his victory, his resurrected life, is our own. And so the political future, our political future, is bright in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you that your spirit is present with us, that your spirit uh, is leading us into all truth, and we pray that your spirit would lead us to be uh, more closely devoted and following the, our risen Lord, the Lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ. So guide us into the future. Give us wisdom as we navigate these complicated, unknown, as Kara said, as and so many have said, unprecedented waters that lay before us. You are our guide. You are our hope. You are our strength. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. If you'd like more information about our historic church or you'd like to find out more about the gospel of Jesus, please visit our website at oldsouthnbpt.org. The peace of Christ be with you.